If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 42. Our text this morning is specifically going to be verses 3 and 4 in Isaiah 42. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that God commands us in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 42 to look to his servant, to forsake our idols. Beholding Christ is not a one-time occurrence at conversion, although it begins there. It is actually the regular discipline of the maturing believer. We saw that God delights in his chosen servant. We saw that through faith in the finished work of Christ, the Spirit unites us to the work of Christ. And now the Father looks at us with great delight, just as he looked at his son. The father promised to uphold his servant and to equip him to complete the task entrusted to him. We also saw that the servant came in great humility, entrusting himself completely to the father's plan, even when it meant intense pain and suffering. He didn't seek the glory that comes from men but the glory that comes from God. So that's verses 1 and 2. We drew out some of those things. Our text this morning speaks to the servant's tenderness. This is good news. This is a text that should encourage the hearts of God's people that we have a tender and merciful Savior. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, there is no doubt that you have encountered discouragement and disappointment, and difficulty in your life. I know that I have gone for months on end, maybe even years, wrestling with my sin and my weakness as a Christian, wondering, is there really grace for me? Is there really hope for a real sinner? This is not a gospel for make-believe people that do not exist The servant's tenderness is directed to real sinners in need. As I looked deep within, I saw evil. It led me to despair. My condition was broken and it was helpless. Because the result, the the resolution to my problem was not found within me. It is found in Christ. I couldn't see that the promises of Scripture were actually for me. It wasn't until that I understood that the promise of God's gracious gospel comes to me in the person and work of Christ. It is unearned from beginning to end. This may seem like an elementary truth for many of you, but I am convinced that I'm not the only one who struggles with discouragement, despair, and despondency. That as I dig deep, I don't like what I find. Where do we go this morning? To the arms of a tender, merciful Savior. When you're wrestling with sin, doubt, trials, and and temptations, run to Christ. Let's read the first servant song of Isaiah, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll jump into verse 3. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, 
my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, as we look at your appointed servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the hearts of your people would be encouraged. They would be strengthened. We wouldn't leave here with just more resolve to do what's right. We would leave here looking to the one who always did what was right. But on the other hand, Lord, I pray for those who are not in Christ. This promise is not for them. So we don't want to give a false hope. I pray, Lord, that you would use this word to encourage, strengthen your people, and to call those who don't know you to repentance. It is by your spirit and your strength for your glory alone. In Christ's name, amen. So verse 3, we see the first promise. A bruised reed he will not break. A reed is a type of grass that grows along the, the banks of marshes and ponds and different sources of water. They grow really tall and they're inherently weak. It is incredibly easy for a reed to get damaged by the wind or the rain. The large amount of reeds that would grow alongside of a bank would make it nearly impossible, in fact, probably a waste of time to take note at a single one who's been damaged. You would just move on, discard it. You wouldn't even give it any thought. It's so insignificant. This concept of a bruised reed that will not be broken by the servant speaks to the servant's gentleness and tenderness to all his people. Like a reed, we are inherently weak. We are prone to bruising. We are prone to getting beat down in this life. I will paraphrase one author who defines the bruised reed this way. A bruised reed is one who finds himself in some misery, and they are unable to change their estate themselves. So they run to Christ for mercy and healing. The bruised reed is one who recognizes they're powerless to change themselves. The bruised reed is one who needs someone else to bind up their wounds and to restore them back to wholeness and to health. 
You may be wondering, what are the reasons for bruising? We could go on and on, but I'm going to give seven that I think most of us at some point of our life could relate to. First, we can get bruised by the sins of other people against us. Others can abuse us. They can mistreat us. They can manipulate us. We can get blindsided by marital unfaithfulness. We can get blindsided by gossip or slander that may be happening within the church against us. We can get bruised in all sorts of ways. Maybe it's at the hand of those who are called to love and protect you. And yet they are the source of your bruising. They are the source of the sin against you. Our deepest hurts in life often come at the hands of those who we should be able to trust the most. And yet when we find ourselves as recipients of sin, it crushes us. It causes us to challenge, to challenge us and it makes us think, does this person even love me? Does this person even care? How could they treat me in this manner? David says in Psalm 55, verses 12 and 13, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. David says, if those who hate me sin against me, I can easily ignore that. I can easily hide and remove myself. But what about the person who lives with you, who is constantly sinning against you? This bruises us deeply. It causes doubt, fear, and anxiety. What is our hope? Our hope is in a merciful Savior who will come to our aid with his precious promises of his faithfulness. He will never deceive you. He will never use you. He will never manipulate you. He comes with his precious promises of faithfulness in the midst of our turmoil. Second, we can get bruised by suffering. This can come in all sorts of ways. It could come in the way of terminal illness. It could come in the way of a spiritual depression that we just can't seem to get out of. It can come through strained relationships, strained marriages. Maybe it comes through financial loss. Everything you've been working and accumulating is gone overnight. Suffering can come in the form of wayward children who you want so desperately to walk in obedience to the word, but they won't have it. Suffering can come from estranged family members who are unwilling to reconcile. It comes in all sorts of ways. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, don't be surprised by suffering. Why? Because everybody suffers. Everybody. That's actually not distinctly Christian, if you live in a sin-cursed world, you are going to suffer. And it is not easy. And yet, we see that our Savior doesn't just model for us how to suffer. He does that. First Peter tells us that. He tells us and shows us how to suffer well. We should follow in his steps. But actually, the relationship that Christ has with the sufferer is much deeper than just cheering us on from the sideline. 
He actually enters into our suffering with us. We share in his suffering. So there is a very real sense in which when you suffer, the Savior is there with you, both modeling and upholding you in the midst of it. He is with us in our suffering. When we groan under its weight, we are drawn near to his presence. We share in his sufferings, but they can bruise us. We can get bruised by Satan's accusations. Number three, the enemy continually seeks to parade our sins before us. We try so desperately to forget the evils of our past, but Satan stands day after day to accuse us and say, if you loved God, would you have done this? There's mercy for these people, but remember what you did last week, last year, five years ago, ten years ago? 15, 20, there's no grace for you. The enemy seeks to parade our sins. He did this to Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 4. God's word says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. But the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, is not Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing. Man, what an amazing thing to hear God say that. Silence, Satan, because I have plucked this man from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Here's the reality. His garments were filthy. His garments were filthy. There was really accusations to bring against him. He was really unfit to be in God's presence on his own merit. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ. The solution is not a denial of the filth. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. I love the way John Bunyan, he records an interchange between Christian and Apollyon in the Pilgrim's Progress. It deals with this very issue. It says, Apollyon accused, you almost fainted. So this is Apollyon speaking to Christian. Here's what he tells him. You almost fainted when you first set out. When you almost choked in the swamp of despond, you also attempted to rid the burden in the wrong way. Instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off. You sinfully swept or slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the side of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and of what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all you do and say. Christian replies, all this is true and much more that you have failed to say. Christian agreed, but the prince whom I now serve in honor is merciful and he is ready to forgive. Besides these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country for there I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them and have been sorry for them and have obtained pardon from the prince. He basically says, Satan, you don't know the half of it. 
everything you're bringing against me is true. So my solution is not to argue with the reality of my sin. My solution is to plead the merits of Jesus Christ. He is merciful. My hope in his ability to pardon, not in my ability to forget what I've ever done in the past. So when Satan brings it up, say, that's why Christ came. He came as our sinless representative, and he has clothed us, clothed us in his righteousness. Don't listen to Satan's accusations. Fourth, we can get bruised by our sin. Our consciences can be wounded because we've given in to the lust of the eyes, or the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. We have appointed ourselves a leader, so to speak, to storm back into Egypt. Yet the sweet voice of Christ reminds us that all of our sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross. And the certificate of indebtedness is canceled forever. So when our consciences are wounded, God is greater than your conscience. It needs to be informed by God's word. It should be pricked when there's disobedience. But the conscience does not have the final say. God does. I love the way Micah says it in Micah 7, 18 and 19. He says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread all our iniquities underfoot. Believer, hear it. He will tread all our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That is the hope of the bruised reed who is beaten down by their sin. That's why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1 We can get bruised by our lack of gifting or usefulness. We can begin... To meditate on what God has done for us. This immense plan of salvation that Christ accomplished perfect obedience. That he spared no expense to redeem us. And yet we look at what we have to offer and there's really nothing there. And that can be a great discouragement when we look and we see other Christians who are exercising gifts and abilities. And we say, here I am, still fumbling along in the, in the Christian life. I have no usefulness. I have no purpose. It can be discouraging. But I want you to hear, God does not require you to exercise gifts he did not give to you. So when you see someone else's gifting, rejoice in that. He gave that to you, to his church, for your benefit. Now what God does expect from us is to exercise the gifts he has given. So if he's given you a little, then give all of it back to him. You see, Jesus talked about this concept in Mark 12, when the widow who cast in what would be equivalent to a penny... And all who had gone before had cast in larger sums of money. But Jesus says that she has given more than all of those before. Quantitatively, that wasn't true. She had not given more when you look at the record of giving. But she gave out of her poverty. She gave back everything that she had. So don't be discouraged by your lack of gifting. Don't envy the gifts of others. Praise God for them and be faithful to steward what he has given to you. Six, we can get bruised by our temptations. 
we can begin to think that no true Christian would be tempted with such evil thoughts and desires. We must battle this lie. Real Christians struggle with real temptation. We must remember 1 Corinthians 10.13 when it says there's no temptation taking you but what's common to man. It doesn't mean that everybody struggles with every possible temptation, but there is nothing that crosses your mind that other believers don't also have to battle against. In fact, the more you mature in Christ, the more you seek to put the flesh to death, the more intense the temptations can be. One author says it like this, you don't realize how strong the current of your sin is until you try to stop the boat and row back up the stream. The flesh rages against the spirit. So it should not shock us when we seek to put the flesh to death that it fights with every ounce of energy against us. So when you think that no Christian would be tempted as I am, that is not true. The question is, will you believe what God says or will you count on your own wisdom? Seven, we can get bruised by persecution. When we're persecuted for our faith, we can begin to question God's goodness. Is it really worth it? I have striven to live obediently and yet I have nothing to show for it. God's word tells us that they will hate you because they hated me. But I think if we're not careful as Christians, we can begin to romanticize this idea of persecution. We have seen many ways that the Lord has used people who have been persecuted, and maybe the story turned out really well for them. Maybe they were at the brink of death, and the Lord intervened in some miraculous way. Those are amazing stories of God's grace, but that's not necessarily the experience of every Christian who's been persecuted. Maybe they went all the way to death, but yet 10 years later, thousands of people get converted. We can rejoice in that, but what about when the persecution ends in nothing significant? What about when you lose your job and there's not another job to take the place? Is it still worth it? What if you die in anonymity? And nobody knows. Nobody cares. Nobody's saved. We can get bruised and discouraged by the persecutions that we face. But Christ knows how to comfort the one who is persecuted since he faithfully walked that path before you. Trust in your Savior. These reasons for bruising are real, but God's grace in them is what's more significant. Next, we see... A bruised reed he will not break. Christ, or stated positively, Christ will mend and restore the bruised reed. He promises not to discard a single bruised reed regardless of the reason for the bruising. Isn't that exciting? It's one thing to say that Christ won't discard the one who's been sinned against. It's quite another thing that Christ won't turn his back on the one who ran back into sin. Regardless of the reason of the bruising, there is no exception here. He will not break it. He will not crush you. That is so anti the flesh, it's hard to understand. You're like, is this actually true? Yes. Yes, it is. Oftentimes, the deepest bruises we possess are because of our own foolishness and disobedience. Yet Christ's promise remains true. So how does he do it? How does he restore 
the bruised reed. He's going to give us four ways. Number one, he leaves us another comforter, namely his Holy Spirit. We see this promise in John chapter 14 when the Lord Jesus is getting ready to depart and he gives this promise that another comforter will come and he will remind them of the truth that he had taught. So in the midst of adversity, we have the Spirit of Christ residing within us, encouraging us and reminding us that we are God's children, as it talks about in Romans 8. He will faithfully intercede for the sheep of his pasture. Number two, how will he restore us? By interceding for us to the Father. And he will administer the gracious promises of God's word to weak and wayward hearts. If you are a sheep of his pasture, he will tend to your every need faithfully until the very end. He won't lose you. He won't let you stray too far. He'll bring you back. Excuse me, back into the fold. Three, he does it through the church. We often fail to see evidences of God's grace when we're in these deep times, and I mean deep times of bruising. We can fail to see evidence of God's grace in our lives. We can think, maybe I am unregenerate. Maybe I am just a fraud. But through the church, the Lord often uses brothers and sisters who can readily see God at work in your life when your eyes are blinded to it. So God will use faithful Christian relationships to restore us. God uses the church as instruments of comfort in the life of his people. I love 2 Corinthians 7 verse 6. Paul says, God who comforts the downcast comforted me by sending Titus. What an amazing thing. What an ordinary thing. The God who comforts. So who did the comforting? God. What was the means by which the comfort came? Titus. It was a man. Who was Titus comforted by? The Corinthian church. So oftentimes the Lord will restore and encourage the bruised reed. We'll see them through this as we lock arms with our fellow believers. Many will wonder, why does, not, does God not comfort me and isolate themselves through the church? Right? They'll pull away from the church in times of discouragement, in times of bruising, and wonder, why is God not present? Be here. Be with the church. God uses them to restore us. Next, he strengthens his people through the means of grace. This includes the preaching, the teaching of the word, reading the word, studying, memorizing it. He restores us through prayer. He restores us through partaking the Lord's Supper. He restores us through thinking back on our baptism. He mends those wounds, and we think, no, I was baptized. I remember confessing Christ, and I'm clinging to that confession today. He encourages us as we see others baptized. He does it through congregational singing. He does it through some very ordinary ways. Sometimes I think we think that there's got to be something miraculous that takes place. Submit yourself to the means of grace, the means in which God has chosen to work and to make himself known to us. Christ draws close to his people, restoring their soul, often, often through very ordinary means as they are applied by his spirit. I know I said four, but let's go ahead and do five. He also uses discipline to restore us to proper fellowship with him. 
When we're straying and when we're bruised and when we're blind in our sin, the Lord is faithful to discipline his people, not out of anger, but out of a loving fatherly discipline that brings us back into the fold. He will not allow us to go off course forever. He loves us so much that he wants to expose that weakness, expose that sin, expose that foolishness. And discipline is not enjoyable in the moment. It's not fun. But it is necessary so that this sin is driven out, so this bruising, this cause of our drawing away from Christ can be removed so we can be drawn back into his presence. Let's continue on in our text. It says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The King James says a smoking flax. I like that a little bit better, but I'm not preaching out of the King James. So we'll go with a dimly burning wick. First off, I want us to note something that's really elementary. The wick is burning. It's been ignited. As faint as the glow may be, as dim as the light is, there is a light. Why is that significant? If there is a spark of spiritual life within your, your soul, it was ignited by the Spirit of God. If there is a warm flame, however weak and flickering and starved for fuel it may be, it was put there by God himself. We are completely incapable of creating spiritual life within our souls. That is the work of the Spirit. The flesh profits nothing, as it says in John 6, 63. And since God created the spark in your life, in your heart, since he created that faith, he will sovereignly tend to it. He accomplishes everything he sets out to do. There is no purpose of God left unaccomplished. He doesn't start projects and move on to something else because that clay is a little more moldable. No, he deals with the smoke in our life as he tends to us and accomplishes his purpose of redemption in our hearts. Christ endures the smoke that is being produced from a, faithfully, uh, from a faintly burning wick as he faithfully tends to our weak hearts. I believe that the smoke represents the sin of his people. What a staggering picture of Christ's patience. <clears throat> he will not quench the most dimly burning wick ever. Ever. There are people in here, I need to hear this, your faith will never be extinguished by your Savior. Regardless of the amount of smoke he is committed to nurse it back to usefulness so that the light shines brighter and brighter as the smoke is reduced. Richard Sibbs says this, Man, man, this is so true, man for a little smoke will quench the light. Christ, we see, ever cherishes the least beginnings. Well, how many times do we want to disregard the ministry of everybody because they're a sinner? I mean, there's, I'm not saying that habitual sin unrepented of is acceptable. And maybe some people aren't truly born again. But I think our tendency as Christians is actually to see one sin and to squinch and to crush everything they've ever done and disregard them as useless and a fraud. That's the tendency of man. 
But Christ, it's not so. He sees the smoke, and what's that sign of? Of a flame. If there's smoke, there's a flame. I honestly believe that every time I sit around a campfire, the smoke follows me wherever I go. You all laugh because you feel exactly the same way that I do. You could have a big fire with the entire congregation around it. And I would bet if you talked, most everybody would feel like the smoke was primarily in their direction. Why is that? Because it's offensive. It offends every sensibility that we have. It's obnoxious to breathe it. It burns our nose. It burns our eyes. And you smell like it forever unless you immediately change your clothes and take a shower. Smoke is offensive. Think about that. Christ endures extraordinary amounts of smoke in his people. We see this with his disciples. How many times did they get wrong who he is and what he came to do? They were completely confused. They left him. They abandoned him. Yet he never abandoned them. Which of us here this morning hasn't experienced the smoke of sin in your life almost extinguishing the flame of your faith. All of us can relate to that. As believers, we go through deep times of doubt, fear, and anxiety. We grow cold to the things of the Lord. And the fire that once burned so brightly is now just a flicker. A smoking flax will never be quenched. Ever. Never. Regardless of how cold you may feel this morning, Christ is inviting you back to him. He is inviting you to look to him and to his righteousness. We must take heart in Christ's promise, in God the Father's promise, that Christ will never extinguish the flame that he ignited. If you're like me, you're like, I don't disagree with, maybe some things you might disagree with what I've said, but generally speaking, I agree with where you're at. Here's my problem. How do I know that there's been a spark of faith? How do I know that I'm the bruised reed and I'm not just a fraud? That's a good question. That's a really important question. You could say, these promises are great if you're a bruised reed or a dimly burning wick, but how do I know that this is my state and that this promise is actually for me? My concern is not with God's faithfulness or his ability to fulfill what he said. My concern is God didn't say that to me because I am not those things. I don't feel those things. These words do not encourage me because I don't find myself in this state, in this situation. Well, here's a very simple answer. I'm going to give four questions we could ask. But how do the promises become you, become yours? How does 42.3 apply to you? By taking hold of it through the eyes of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does this promise become yours? By looking to Christ, falling down at his feet, by looking at the servant and crying out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The promise becomes yours when you take it because Christ has accomplished it and you take it not by your strength but by faith and faith alone in what only God can accomplish. So how do you know if you've done that? First, do you mourn over your lack of faith? Do you cry out like Mark 9:24, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief? Are you troubled by the fact that you're so slow to exercise faith in a God who's so great? If that bothers you, 
That's a sign of grace in your life. The unbeliever is not sitting around thinking, how can I exercise more faith in the Lord? That is not the concern of the unbeliever. So if you're troubled that your faith is so weak in a God who is so great, take heart this morning. Second, are you grieved by your sin? While we can initially be brought to repentance through outward consequences, the thing that should grieve us the most about our sin is it's against such a great and merciful God. Do you hate sin? Does your sin bother you even when there's no earthly consequence? Even when it seems like you've gotten away with it? Do you desire to grow in your hatred for sin? Or maybe another way, do you hate it that you don't hate your sin even more than you do? That's the sign of grace. The unbeliever does not hate their sin, especially sin that nobody knows about, but sin that is only between them and the Lord, sin that resides in their mind, in their heart, that they wouldn't dare to do outwardly. If you hate sin at that level, these promises are for you. Do you look to Christ as your only hope for salvation? Romans 5.19 says it is through one man's obedience that many are made righteousness, not one plus you, One man's obedience. Do you look to Christ alone as the solution to your problem? Is Christ your defense before the Father? When the law of God presses heavy upon your conscience, do you look to Christ and not self-effort, not more resolutions? It's Christ. Do you recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt? These are signs of grace. Do you long to be in God's presence, both now and in eternity? Do you want more intimate fellowship with God? Do you desire to have this body of sin destroyed so that you can worship God without a thought of temptation, without a distraction, with nothing to draw you away? Do you want to be in the presence of God? Are you bothered that you have not spent more time today, this week, this month, in God's presence than you have? The unbeliever pulls away from the light, right? They run, to, they run away from the light because they love darkness. When we're pressing into God's presence and his light exposes our sin, this is a sign that this gift is for you. The last thing we see in verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. We'll speak more on that here in verse 4, so let's go ahead and skip ahead to the beginning of verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Man, that is good news. He will not grow faint in what? With you. I mean, simply put, the immediate context is what is he doing? He's tending to the dimly burning wick. He's mending the bruised reed. He's promising, the father is promising that he won't crush them. And he will not grow faint or discouraged in his mission to restore you to a rightful place with him. He will patiently and faithfully tend to your bruises and to your discouragements. Christ will not grow weary in doing his people good. He never tires of extending grace to his people. He doesn't get discouraged because you're still struggling with the same sins you struggled with 15 years ago. Instead, he has this loving resolve to be tender and faithful to his people who are so harsh and slow to believe. 
While your bruising may be deep and your faith barely flickering, his resoluteness to be merciful is greater than your sin. His grace is greater than your sin. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. This should never, ever encourage us to continue in our sin, ever. What it should do is when we are pressed upon by the law of God that there is sin in our life that needs to be dealt with, it should cause us to run to Christ because I know he'll not grow faint. He won't grow discouraged that I've had to repent of the same sin time and time and time again. So rather than it giving us a license to sin, it actually gives us every reason in the world to lay that sin aside and to run back to our Savior and to be washed and cleansed anew and afresh. There is no reason to shrink back from his presence. Run to Christ this morning. Claim the promise of his faithful resolve that we see in verse 4. I think another aspect of what the servant is accomplishing is this work of redemption. He won't grow faint or discouraged in this plan of redemption. The servant is determined to complete the task, the mission that the father has entrusted to him. One theme that you'll find in the Gospel of Luke, if you read through it, starting around chapter 9, it has these phrases or something like this, on his way to Jerusalem, on the road to Jerusalem, on the path to Jerusalem. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what the mission was, what waited for Jesus at Jerusalem. The schemes of the devil and foolish men who would slap him and spit in his face. What awaited him from Jerusalem was the abandonment of his friends. What awaited him from Jerusalem was the disdain of the Father when he became sin for his people. So that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And yet with laser focus he marched down this path of disobedience. When you're turning back... He is continuing to press on in this mission of redemption. How did he do it? Four ways. There's not five this time. There's just four. Four ways. First, he understood what the mission was. John 6, 37 through 40 says this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven... What's the mission? I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me and to raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's very simple. The mission, don't lose one that the Father has given to him. And this is God's will that all that the Father has given will come. And if you come, you will never, no, not ever, be cast out. Never. But never. He will accomplish. It primarily speaks to his strength, not to yours. There is no doubt in the mind of Christ what he came to do. In the same way as believers, we should live with a laser focus on what God has called us to. What is the will of God? Your sanctification. In the simplest of terms, your sanctification, that you would live holy, that you would grow in Christ's likeness, 
So when we recognize that God's mission for us is to live a holy life before him, then it gives us order in a world of chaos. Second, he walked in perfect obedience with the spirit in perfect accordance with the spirit of God without ever quenching or hindering his work. Wherever the spirit led him, he went. When the spirit drove him into the wilderness, he went. He always had complete reliance upon the spirit of God to fuel him for the task at hand. There was never a moment that he did not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength as he was fueled by the Holy Spirit. How did he accomplish the mission? Third, he made it his habit to commune with the Father through prayer. Mark says in chapter 2, rising very early in the morning, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Was it because he was a morning person? Maybe. I think it was because that was the only time he could really commune with the Father without being interrupted. He was constantly needed. He was constantly asked to perform miracle after miracle. When we did one, they asked for another. But he desired intimate fellowship with his Father. So he would get up when everyone else was sleeping and he would go out to a desolate place and pray. He was fueled for the mission by prayer to his Father. By communion with him. Fourth, he lived by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. He devoured the scriptures. You see, Jesus learned the scriptures much like you and I do. He read them. He was taught them, presumably by his parents. We see in Luke 2 that he's in the temple, sitting under the teaching of the scribes, asking questions. They're amazed at his understanding, even as a 12-year-old. He read, studied, and believed the scriptures. He read, I believe wholeheartedly, he read passages like this. And he understood, this is me. I am the servant. I am the one that God the Father has sent to accomplish the mission of redemption. He faithfully believed and submitted himself to every word of God. That's how he doesn't grow faint or be discouraged. Next we see that he will establish justice in the earth. In the first four verses, we see this recurring theme of justice in verse 1. We see it again in verse 3. We see it in verse 4. It must be important, this idea of establishing justice. There's three aspects of justice that I want us to explore. We could spend more time on this, but for the sake of time, I want us to think of at least three ways that Christ, the servant, has established justice in the earth. First, he provided a just means for God to clear the guilty. It would not be just for God to pardon sinners if there was not a payment for that sin. So God establishes a just way of redemption for his people. It is through the shed blood of Christ that our cleansing has been purchased. Without his substitutionary death, there's no just forgiveness of sins. There's no clearing the guilty because God's wrath, God's justice must be appeased. But Christ on the cross bore the wrath of God, becoming the curse that you and I should have borne. He bore that in your place and in mine. That's what Romans 3:25 and 26 teaches us. Second, he will establish justice through exacting punishment on those who persist in their unbelief. Remember earlier I said these promises are not all-inclusive. 
if you persist in your unrepentance, if you don't look to the servant, as it talks about in verse 1, you will most assuredly pay for your sins for all eternity. In everlasting torment, there will be no hope for you at that point. In some ways, that writes what we understand needs to be righted in our culture, right? We see people all the time, it seems like, get away with things that are just terrible. There will come a day of reckoning where every person will stand before God and they will pay for every sin they've committed if that was not placed on Christ. And if they did not look with eyes of faith to him, they will suffer eternal punishment. Second Thessalonians says that he will come back with a flaming fire, exacting punishment on those who do not know God, who persist in their unbelief. So he establishes justice by judging the unbeliever. Third, as the servant's mission goes forward, there will be an increasing influence of justice within his people. I think we could spend more time on this, but we won't. But as you and I get conformed into the image of Christ, we begin to have just dealings with one another. If you read the epistles, if you read the law of God, that's what justice looks like. Right? Let him who stole steal no more, but rather give. To be just is to live a life in conformity to the law of God. So as God's law begins to have more influence, remember Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So when we say, what does the law point to? Ultimately, it points to Christ. So when we see God's law and that law begins to get manifested in our lives as we behold Christ, we talked about that in verse 1 as well, then justice goes forward. Then we don't cheat people. Then we don't lie to people. We don't take their stuff. We respect their personal property as the gospel has influence in our hearts and minds. So he establishes justice through his people. Biblical justice comes as the result of the servant's work in his people. The last thing we see in verse 4, the coastlands will wait for his law. The work of the servant will reach much further than Judah and Israel. It's to the very ends of the earth. The coastlands will wait. I love this idea of waiting. It's this eager anticipation for the law of God. Do you have that? Do you have an eager anticipation? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, I run to your law? Teach me so that I can obey? The law is not just something that sits as this ruling and condemning authority over us. It does that. But as believers, it actually becomes a friend to us. What does God desire of you? How does he want you to live? Good news. He spelled it out in his law. So when we look to the law of God, that's not our means of righteousness. That's Christ. He perfectly upheld it in our place. But if you want to know what it looks like to be a maturing believer, look to God's law. It is a friend to point you to the God who saved you. How much sense would it make if Christ came to fulfill the law and yet we look at the law as something that has no value? Well, he lived it. So what did Christ live like? What the law said. Now, it doesn't mean we're under the ceremonial law. We could digress. We won't go there. But here's the point. The coastlands will wait for his law. The mission will be accomplished. Christ will save his sheep. He won't lose one. Two implications. First, do you need to be mended this morning? I don't doubt that there are some here who are going through immense trials and temptations. 
whether it's the accusations of Satan, whether it's strained relationships. I don't know what suffering you have, but I do know what promise has been given to you if you're in Christ. A bruised reed he will not break. Take heart in the Savior's tenderness. He will patiently and gently restore you to health and service. Do you reflect this tender attitude with your fellow man? We didn't talk much about that, but I think that's something we need to think about. If Christ is so tender, why am I so harsh? Why am I so easy to get impatient and to get frustrated? Do you reflect the tender attitude with other believers who commit actually real sins, right? Not made up sins, not like one time I forgot to read my Bible, like real sins. Are you tender towards believers seeking to restore them or do you want to crush them? How can such weak and frail sinners be so harsh with weak and frail sinners? Lord, help us. Last, we must find our hope in the servant's resolve to accomplish his mission. If you leave here this morning and you think, I just got to do better, you've missed the point. Christ has done it for you. Yeah, maybe there are things that need to change. That's not what I'm saying. But your status is not based on your perseverance. It's based on his perseverance to accomplish the mission. Our hope is not in our ability to pursue Christ with unwavering resolve. Our hope is in his ability to pursue us. That is the hope of the gospel. Preach it to yourself day in and day out. We need it. I need it. Look to the servant's tenderness. Rejoice in your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I know there's hearts in here who are doubting, that are hurting, that don't know what tomorrow may look like. I pray that your spirit would take your word and comfort them through it. We would be trained to take our eyes off of ourself and put them on Christ. When we see our sin, rather than drawing back from you, I pray that we would run towards you. If there's any that don't know you today, the call is clear. They must repent. They must bow before your servant. They must look to Christ. This is no option. This is what you have commanded. You have appointed a day in which you will judge the living and the dead. I pray that no unbeliever here would find comfort. Pray that they would be pricked in their conscience through your spirit and be drawn to the matchless Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.